Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to episode number 40 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I am Adam at the real 27 guy on Instagram, and I'm your host, and uh, welcome to the podcast today. I think that this will be a good one. Um, I uh, asked a couple of days ago, asked yesterday and today for ideas for things that you would like to hear me discuss on the show. And I got some pretty good questions back. I got about 20 questions, and I've narrowed it down to 10 today. Um, I uh, Just to take you through it real quick, I am going to take you through those 10 questions. Uh, here, Here's a sampling of them. I'm going to talk to you about Card Ladder, something that you've likely seen on Instagram over the course of the last few days, uh, over the last week. I'm going to talk to you about early autographs uh, that do not have tamper-proof um faculties to them and that uh, are like like some of the autographic sets they're more easily reproduced i'm going to talk to you about vintage basketball pricing surge uh, by the way these are all again these are all questions that i had come from other people uh, i'm going to talk about how the return of sports will influence the hobby i received that question several times and i have lots of thoughts on that and uh, hope hope those are interesting to you I'm also going to talk to you about what influences um, when cards get hot. Um, the person who asked that suggested that it's not totally organic. And as I discussed last week, I agree with him in a lot of cases. I'm going to talk about um, people buying out Walmarts and Targets and then selling product for ridiculous prices. I'm going to talk about mass-produced PSAs and whether they're sustainable. And I'm going to talk about the recent prices, the recent price spike in cards. So, um, and then after the, the the 10 questions, I'm going to talk, I'm going to share with you guys my last month of mail and then do our Beckett Bites uh, weekly segment, which I'm going to talk about the 2002 June Paul Pierce Beckett basketball uh, issue, which I think was actually a really good issue. 2002 was not a great year for Beckett basketball, in my opinion, but that I think was a pretty good uh, issue. So we'll go to that point. But first, I would be remiss if I did not take a moment to tell you guys about an experience that I have had this last week. I got a message on Instagram from somebody who I met in California when I was there um, back in January. I went to a shop called The Bullpen to meet up with Chris from the House of Jordans podcast. Um, and I was there I was there only for a few days. I had a funeral that I had to go to, but while I was there, I thought, hey, it'd be a cool chance to, to meet up with some of the guys that I know are down here. And while I was there, I met a guy named Nick. And uh, Nick's... Uh, Nick on Instagram is all the Jordans 23. Well, out of the blue, I, well, let me just say it. When I first met Nick, he just, he was really cool. Um, he was totally unassuming, but had some really cool key Jordan cards. Was like really kind to me. You know, he said, he's like, Adam, yeah, I know you. You, I follow your countdown and, you know, let's listen to your podcast and stuff. And it's really good to meet you. And whenever somebody comes up and like, you know, says things like that and is appreciative, it's like, yeah, that's really awesome because content creation isn't easy, right? It's, it feels like a slog and you're out there sometimes feeling like, do I sound like an idiot? People actually like this. Um, and to, so to have people come up to you every now and then and say, hey, 
I really like what you're doing. Thank you for doing it. It feels really good. Well, out of the blue last week, Nick messaged me and said, hey, I'm taking my old cards um, that I collected when I was a kid and trying to figure out what to do with them. I know your kid really likes Kobe Bryant. I was wondering if I could send him some cards. And I was like, oh man, you are the nicest guy ever. And so I gave him my address and had him address it to Aaron, my son. And Aaron was looking forward to receiving some cards and I didn't tell him, you know, what he was getting. He thought he was getting a card. Um, but then I let it slip that the box might be kind of big. So then he was like, what am I getting, Dad? And I was like, oh, I'm not going to tell you. And I didn't really know. But today the box came and I was at work and Aaron messaged me from his mom's phone and said, Dad, when are you coming home? And he was so excited for the whole day. And I came home. And when I got home, like the very first thing that I had to do was turn on the Instagram live and open this box with Aaron. The box was big. It was heavy. It was one of those giant flat rake boxes, like the biggest size there is. And on the inside of it was several sealed boxes of, or not, not, not like sealed unopened boxes, but several um, post, post office boxes filled with Kobe cards and with other cards. And I was just blown away. I was like, holy smokes, Nick. As soon as I opened one, I was like, this is, this is a big package that this guy just sent to me. And then as we went through, it turned out the very first box that I opened was probably the worst one. It, it just had Kobe inserts. It just had like more common Kobe inserts that are like 5 to $10. The other boxes had, there's a Dennis Rodman autograph um, at Optic. There was a Kobe Bryant 2008 Topps base card with LeBron James in it. Just like a $50 card. There was an autograph patch um, of Michael Finley. Um, uh, gold that was a gold version. There were several prism gold cards, number to 10. There was a bunch of Jordan cards. There was probably 40 numbered Kobe cards. There was Kobe rookie cards. This box was not just a gift. This box was a ton of value. And um, I've just been thinking about it ever since in the hours that have passed since I got to open that with Aaron. As I sit here and record this now, my dining room has cards strewn about as Aaron is, has feverishly decided to, um, to go through his binder and reorganize everything. And I see, I see nine-year-old or I see 10-year-old, 27 guy, you know, 10-year-old Adam there doing those sort of things. And, and um, it just, it was just a tremendous gift. You know, you don't have to, when you give a gift, it doesn't always have to be a thousand dollar gift like this one was for Nick. Um, but it, it just, it was so kind. And so I would be really like, I'd regret not saying anything. Nick, I don't, Nick didn't want me to say anything. You know, he and I actually kind of talked about it and he didn't want me to say anything, but I just, it's so good to receive a gift like that and it makes me want to figure out how to to give a gift like that nick left a note i should also mention this that was um that was handwritten and he said hey aaron here's my collection that i put together when i was younger i want to give you the chance to you know figure out what you want and the rest of the stuff you can sell and you can go buy something else with and you can build your collection into exactly what you want it to and that's the coolest part because now Aaron gets to do that. So Nick, thank you. I hope you can feel the sincerity in my voice because I'm really grateful. You gave my son a gift and um, that means a lot. 
All right. Let's talk about some stuff here. So, but before, actually, let me just one more shout out. That's Nick at all the Jordans twenty three. Go give that guy a follow, and um, yeah, he is he is awesome. He's my new he's my new Superman in the hobby for sure. All right, let's talk about card ladder. What is card ladder? I think that's still a to be determined uh, thing. The um, let me tell you what I do know about card ladder. I am not unbiased when it comes to card ladder because it is being created by some of the some some people in the hobby that I feel like uh, I can call very good friends. Um, I have known Josh for a couple of years. Josh is the guy who started Cardboard Chronicles. He uh, his first episode of Cardboard Chronicles was with by far his best uh, his his best guest. That would be me. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not his best guest, by the way. Uh, but Josh and I kind of went to national together in 2018. Um, I can't believe that's been two years ago, man. Uh, he is an exceptionally smart and brave person. He's willing to try new things. He's willing to take risks. And he's been incredibly successful in cards over the last few years. And... Uh, Frankly, he, he keeps all the advice that I would say. He buys what he likes. He does what he thinks. And he leads. He doesn't just follow the crowd. He does what he thinks is the right thing to do. Um, he also has exceptional programming abilities that make him an interesting person to take on this, this job. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what he does. Chris, I probably talked to and have talked to more over the last year or so. Chris is one of the smartest people and most passionate people in the hobby. And I think, um, you know, with his law ba background and just in general, just being an incredibly like smart, well-spoken guy um, and, know, and caring greatly about the hobby and about cards, he and Josh make a pretty fabulous team. So... They're going to do big things and, you know, if they, if they want to, it is a large undertaking though. And when I say it, I think it is still to be determined. I think what, what card ladder becomes, they have an, a real outline of, and I think they kind of know where it's going to go. Uh, um, but I don't want to speak on their behalf. I, I think, you know, follow what they're going to do over this next little while uh, but I would definitely put my support behind it and tell you to go check it out. Go, you know, go, you know, try to try to see if it's for you. Um, I, it, I'm sure it's going to be, um, you know, it, it will be a, a product that you need to pay for to use. Um, and for some people, that's an immediate, you know, I'm not going to do it. And I think that's fine. You know, but for other people, maybe it's a tool that you can use to make more money. Or maybe it's a tool that you can use to sort of, figure out what you what you believe is the next big thing to go up or down. And for some people, that is what the hobby is. That is not what the hobby is for me. And so I don't know if it's something that I will want to use or, or will use, but I know that it's something that other people will want to use. And so if you're the sort of person that's, that's trying to you know, figure out what the next thing is that's going to go up or, you know, you want some of the functionality of some of the other things they're doing in their software, I think it could be really great for you. Um, but I would, I would suggest you watch because if those guys really do put their full energy into something and they're able to, to come up with ideas that help 
the community in ways that haven't been thought of before, it could be something that's used more widely than, than you'd guess. And it could be something that really, it could be something that actually changes the hobby. So I'm interested to see what they'll do. The other thing I'll say, it's not just the two of them. And they've got some other really smart people with them, including a producer who has, brought, who has put together some really top-notch videos. Um, who And the way that they've advertised it has been really smart. You can almost not get on Instagram as a car guy and see those videos and, and not see those videos. And if you see the video, you're like, what is this thing? What What is this thing that's coming? Your interest has probably been peaked like mine. So let's see what happens over the course of the next little while. All right, topic number two. Uh, the question that I was asked was about fake first skybox autographs. And I want to get the person who it was from. So bear with me for just a moment. I should have written it down on my spreadsheet, but I didn't because I'm an idiot. Um, I got a question that asks about first year autographics autos. And the question is, you know, is this like, tell me about, tell me about like fake versus real uh, autographics autos. And the question was from Alamo 50. Alamo 50, what I would tell you is based on my experience, anytime somebody in the hobby or some, uh, anytime there is a card that has been produced in a way that it is, that it is not, um, in, in a way that it's easy to copy, it's going to be copied. And we have a lot of autographs that that's happening with right now. Autographics have been faked going back to the late 90s. In fact, I think I mentioned, and this might be why you're asking the question, I think I mentioned it on a previous episode that one of the Beck, one of the Beckett Bites that I did talked about um, fake early autographics autos. So th those go back to the late 90s. It's been happening for a really long time. And I think there are other sets that are pretty obvious when they came out. Oh, this is going to be a set that's going to have issues. The one that has unfortunately just kind of been pretty obvious to me was the original next day autos out of Panini. Not just the original ones, all of the years where they don't have technology in place that makes it difficult to copy. What kind of technology is that? Well, whenever you see something that's different than just cardboard, that's a difficult thing for the bad guys to replicate. So a stamp, for example. You saw the stamp this year that they amazingly put over Zion's autograph. Amazing, right? The reason that it's, that it's important that they have things like that is that stamp shows, okay, or creates a barrier for faking the card. Um, so the original autographics cards didn't have that. You know, they had they had a stamp, but if you could figure out a way to to get to get a or an emboss, I should say, if you could figure out a way to get something that resembles that emboss, then you're kind of out of luck because there's not a lot else on the card that's really super unique. The thing that I would do as far as giving advice would be, if I was a buyer of the old autographic stuff, I would be more interested in older graded copies, um, but with the knowledge that even those still might not be perfect, the, probably the best thing you can do is learn about the fakes, learn about the autographs, and then just look for signs that something's not quite right. Um, sometimes even when you just get a card in your hand and you just look at the details of it, you can just feel that something's off. Um, that's, I think, especially true with 86 Fleer for me. I don't have an easy way to tell you whether how, how I can tell that an 86 Fleer is fake, 
But most of the time, if I get it in hand, I can look at that thing and I can just feel it because I've been around 86 Flare since I was, you know, eight years old. All right, good question. Stop number three, vintage basketball price surge. So I was actually asked about vintage basketball from a couple of different people and thought that was interesting. Um, I want to make sure I get the, the guy's name who asked this one. So he, the person who asked this was Eric underscore C underscore Watts. He says, vintage basketball prices have spiked since May. Do you expect prices to keep climbing? I think that vintage basketball is the smartest thing in the hobby. It's the smart, smartest thing in our space because I don't see any downside and I see tons of upside. How's that? Um, I think for the longest time, it's been something that hasn't been... Uh, hasn't been as popular as you would guess that it would be. And, and I'll, I'll explain why. When you look at some of the other um, sports, baseball and football, the vintage prices on those are just significantly higher than basketball. And you and it doesn't really make sense why. In some ways it does because there are people around today who are still buying older baseball cards that bought them when they were kids or that remember watching those guys. You know, there's guys in their, in their 70s who remember watching Mickey Mantle and, and you know, loving him and wanting, and they want these cards. Um, and so it, it makes sense why some of those things are, are maybe more popular than basketball because baseball was a more popular sport at the time. But basketball has some characters that are very important iconic and some cards that are very important and iconic and, and far rarer, far more rare, especially in, in good high grade condition than, than in baseball, right? You look at like, go, go sometime, do a, do a comparison between the populations of Mickey Mantle baseball cards and the populations of Wilt Chamberlain basketball cards. Here's, you know, here's what you need to know. There are vastly greater quantities of the mantles that have been graded, and mantles got far more cards. The if you if you look at each player and their original cards and then figure out a market cap on them, I haven't done this for for um, Chamberlain, but my suspicion is that the entire um, you take all of Wilt Chamberlain's non-rookie cards and figure out, and so everything past 61 clear, you know, 69 tops to 74 tops, all six years of cards, and you'd figure out the market cap on that. My guess is that it doesn't even touch one mantle card, right? Like I would guess the entire market cap of Wilt Chamberlain's whole post-rookie career doesn't even touch one Mickey Mantle card. And I think you could maybe say that about any Mickey Mantle card. It's that different. And why do I compare Mantle and, 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 and Wilt? I think it's because Wilt is the mantle of basketball, right? He is the guy that people know, um, and he is the icon. He is the 100 points, the 50 points per game, the guy who played for the Lakers and for the Sixers, all right? He is, he is the most well-known guy from that era. That doesn't mean he's the best guy from that era, right? Just like Mantle wasn't necessarily the best guy from his era. I would give that to Bill Russell, even though Russell came a little bit earlier. Um, you can say that they're from the same era. Um, I think I think that it's interesting. I think that that you you know if if you go past Wilt too, and you get to guys like Kareem and down down into guys like say like a Willis Reed. Willis Reed has some very important moments in his career. He's one of the greatest fifty players of all time, and his cards aren't worth anything, guys. They're not worth anything. 
So does there ever come a time where people start to really care about the history of the game? I've always cared about it because my dad talked to me so much about it growing up. Um, and and again, there's not downside because the cards aren't worth they aren't worth anything. Even graded stuff is so cheap. So do I think it will keep going up? I think in the short term, actually, the fact that um, the NBA is coming back will hurt the old stuff. Because what I think we've seen over the last couple months is a shift to people buying cards that are more uh, more um, more stable. Players that feel like they've built legacies have been where people have put their money over the course of the last three or four months. People haven't been buying on speculation because they don't know if the guys are even going to play. In fact, if you could go back, and this is what we predicted when it was happening, if you could go back and buy those players um, a month ago um, for those prices, uh, you know, players who are going to be playing over the course of the next couple of months, I think you would do really well because those guys are all seeing bumps right now. Why? Because people always want to have their money in the thing that might that might really pop, right? And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So, yeah, good question on the vintage basketball pricing surge. I don't know what will happen in the short term, but I would just tell you in the long term, I just think vintage basketball is the smartest way to go. And I know that people aren't buying it, and it'll be like, and it, that just seems like a why would you buy something that people aren't buying? Because, because I believe in long term more than short term. I believe that you know when you focus on um, when you focus on something that you really like and something that's really interesting to you, that it, it it's more likely to go up. And I think that a lot of what people are buying that's modern is more just a I'm going to be in this for a short time. I'm going to make my money and I'm going to get out. They look at it more like a a temporary investment vehicle. Nobody's looking at vintage basketball as a temporary investment vehicle. The people who own that are people who will own it for a long, long time. At least that's my experience. All right, stop number four. How the return... Oh, wait, we already read that. That was number four. Um, well, actually, no. We kind of went in number four, and I didn't really I didn't really ask it. The question was from SGE Sports 922 and J. Lee, Jeremy, uh, asked the same question, which is, how will the return of sports, particularly the NBA, affect sports card prices? I've already kind of answered that indirectly, but let me answer it more directly. I think that what has happened over the last week since the announcement was made is not surprising. And that is that people are now loading up on guys that they believe will do well in the playoffs, because people are addicted to like the gamble. They want to be they want to be part of the guy who's going to go in and play. They want to own piece a piece of him as he's playing in the games, and that speculation and that like wanting to be be part of that guy, that sort of gamble, is inherent to a lot of collecting today. And so people have moved their money away from things that are more stable, Jordan. And you know more stable guys to to younger guys, so it's it's flipped right. Two weeks ago or a month ago, people were selling Giannis so they could get Jordan, or selling not really Giannis but current players so they could get Jordan. Now people are going to sell Jordan to to get the other guys, and that's how this hobby works. But to me, that's you know that's that's again another rule, another reason why you should why looking at the, the long term is smarter than short term and i'll answer that actually in the, this next question so let's go to the next question the next question was from kobe east coast on instagram he says who influences what cards are hot 
all of a sudden because it's sure not organic. Yeah, if you listened to my episode last week, you know I agree. Um, or was it last week? Yeah. Yeah, I think people are people are conspiring to create narratives and sometimes they're doing it you know, in pairs or in groups. And when you have a group of people that conspires to change the market, it works. Right? It's uh, it works because because it gets in your face and you see it and you go, oh, I don't want to miss it. And you FOMO and you you go buy stuff. Um, I do think that there is a lot that is organic in our hobby, and I think when you're talking about thinly traded assets, it's easy to see large, large changes. Nothing bugs me worse than when somebody's like, the last one of these sold for a hundred. This can't be worth more than like. 105 or 110 actually it can be worth a lot more because thinly traded assets can move very very quickly and we'll talk about some of those um, the thing that I want to point out here though is that I think at the crux of this question is um, a philosophy and that philosophy is a short-term one I have made money on the short-term game in the game in this hobby and was making money on it you know, back before a lot of people who are, you know, here now were even thinking about the hobby. Um, there are a lot of ways to buy and sell quickly. Um, there are a lot of ways to see something coming, buy a, buy up a big stockpile, and then go and make your money and get out. And to some people, that's what this whole hobby is. To me, it's just, I've said it before, that just isn't very fulfilling to me. Um... I don't care to own something just because it's going to go up in value. That might make me different than everybody else. I'm pretty sure it actually is different. I would rather own cards that I think are cool, even if I don't see them going up for several years. Um, I don't want to own stuff that I think is going to decrease in value. No, I please mis don't misunderstand that. I, I wouldn't tell you to hold on to something if you think that it's just going to go down in value forever. But, um, but yeah, I don't have any desire in just buying something just because, oh, I think that's going to go up. And so what I would say uh, to your question is, you know, if you're trying to time the market, I think there's a more fulfilling way for you to enjoy the hobby. I think if you buy what you care about and put together sets and create collections and look for specific cards and find out what you think is cool, that's the way to do this. You know, don't don't think about you know how somebody's gonna go make money because they're doing this that and whatever else. Just my my one of my philosophies is stay above the fray, right? When you see people who are doing things that are wrong or bad, or you can feel the the, the manipulation happening, just stay away from it. I didn't used to realize how people sort of use the forums, how people use. You know, like I said last week, the eBay, the, the sort of creating narrative. I get it now. I kind of see through it now. There's a lot of guys out there who will tell you that's not what they're doing and that's exactly what they're doing. And I think most of them know it. Just buy what you like. And don't play the follow the leader game. Be your own leader. All right, next question. Um, thoughts on UD scoring the soul rights in the NBA? This came from... Nice looking cardboard, one of my favorite people on Instagram. He says, any insight on how Panini scored solo rights, uh, NBA rights, how did Upper Deck lose that? I think Kyle talked about that on one of his uh, Wax Museum podcast episodes. Shout out to Kyle, go listen to him. He's a lot smarter than me. Um, 
he, I think, talked about, and he, he's brilliant in his research. I was listening to one of his episodes earlier today, actually, and he was, he was taught, I think, at one point he talked about how Panini just was willing to pay more uh, for the license, and frankly, the NBA needed it. Um, Tops and Upper Deck just fought for years and tried to compete against each other. It just makes more sense to have one company, I think. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm alone in this in this thought, but I think the other thing is Panini has done a killer job. There are things that they do that I don't like. I wish they had a clear cut best rookie card. I still don't believe they do. I wish they had a card that was both the rarest and an autograph patch and the nicest patch and the nicest looking. I wish it was. I wish it was all one thing, like we had when we had Exquisite. But they're not going to give us that because it's not a good business model, right? Their business model is to give different competitive advantages to different cards, put them all on different products, and sell more products. I think it makes sense. Um, they make more money that way. All right. So that is a good question. All right. So then the next question is, oh, my buddy Nader. My, my Utah buddy Nader. Oh, and by the way, Jeremy, uh, Jaylee underscore cards. Thank you for that for that question as well. Um, that we talked about earlier. So Nader wants to know, people are buying out Walmarts and Target, Targets and selling for ridiculous prices. Yeah, man, people are always going to try to make money. And your job when people are trying to make money off of you is to not let them. Your job is to say, I want to buy what I like and I don't care if you try to mark this up. So if you can't get to the box that you really want for a cheap price, that's fine. Let's go buy something else. But if the whole market is saying you've got to have this one thing, that's probably not the moment that you want to buy that thing. In this case, it's mosaic mosaic boxes, right? That's what you're talking about. Like if everybody's freaking out about the same thing, just let it go. If you if you can get get it and get it for a good deal, great. But do not get FOMO. Do not get like negative when you don't get your thing. Just move on. It's not worth it. Seriously, man. That's my advice. Not worth worrying about. I've done a lot of chasing in my life on stuff that just didn't really matter in the end. Buy what you like. Zig when other people zag. That's that's like 90% of why I've been able to build the collection that I've been able to build is because I never buy stuff when everybody else is buying it. If everybody else is buying something, I just stay away. Now, sometimes that's wrong, right? Because everybody's buying it. And then it turns out that it's just always going to be more expensive than it was at that point. That's how it sometimes is. In my experience, that's the rare case. Most of the time when everybody's out there buying something, that's when you should be selling it if you have it. So zig when other people zag. Good question, man. All right. Uh, the next question is one that I've talked about a little bit, but I want to talk about it some more. It's from, oh, and three underscore underscore co underscore LA. We say always love when I talk about vintage. I've actually been thinking about talking about vintage more, kind of doing like a vintage moment every episode. I love vintage. Like I always say it's my first love in the hobby. It, uh, it's still super interesting to me. As I talked about earlier with the Wilt stuff and with all vintage, I just think it's underrated. I do. Um, and I think that if there's a an area in our hobby that's both safe and provides large upside, it's high-grade vintage. And personally, I love um, I know not everybody loves this, but I love PSA DNA vintage. I love that. I love that they have a pop report um, for autographs and like autograph rookie cards that you can go look and see how many, you know, for example, I've got a John Stockton rookie card, autograph rookie card that's coming up. 
you can go and see that there's only 12 John Stockton autograph rookies that have ever been submitted to PSA DNA. That is so fantastic. It's not really vintage in my mind. I know it is in some people's minds, but um, but you get my point. Um, the next question, though, is from Schwab Card Collection. He says, we both agree that the hype of modern mass-produced PSA DNA is, isn't awesome. Um, so do you think it could possibly be sustainable, especially for a non-rookie? I don't think... I don't like predicting prices because I don't ever want to feel like I'm affecting how people are buying. But what I would tell you is I don't own, I don't own those types of things because especially when it comes to graded base cards, the rarity in that item is created by the fact that it's graded. And if, if a card isn't truly rare, but it's, it's thought of as rare because of a population, then when it goes up in value, people are going to grade more of them. Now for that to sustain itself, I think it is still possible. It's possible because more people are coming into the hobby at a rate that allows those prices to stay stable, even though the population increases. I also think there's times where people are like, screw it. I got $20,000 in the bank. I can buy this specific card at $100 all day long and nobody's ever going to tell me I can't. And so hoarders change things. It used to be where it felt like people just needed a copy. And that's kind of the way I am now. Still, like, I just kind of want a copy of a card. I don't need to own 10 of it. But some people out there are, like, trading cards like they're, like, shares of stock. I kind of think that's dumb, but other people love it. I track, you know, gains and losses all day for my job. I don't, I don't really need to do it on cards. But some people love that, actually, about cards. So I shouldn't say it's dumb because a lot of people love it. Um, I just like, I, I, let me give you an example. If, if somebody says to me, I mean, I'm going to make up an example, but, but I don't know, I don't know the modern populations well enough, but let's say, you know, let's say that there were, let's say that there were 10,000 Luka Doncic PSA 10 prisms. I think that's about right, actually. And let's say there is, you know, there's 10 gold. Luka Doncic prisms. Well, the way that I would look at it is like, like some people would say, I'd rather own, you know, a couple hundred Luka Doncic prisms than one gold. I'd rather own the gold all freaking day, man. Like the gold is, I'm not just saying that because Chris from HJ owns one. <laughs> um, I didn't think of that. But I, like I, I would rather own the, the hard to find thing. Why would I rather own like a billion of the same card that you can get on every street corner? That doesn't do me any good. I want the rare thing that's hard to find, that's prettier, that's better looking. Like I want the rare thing. I don't I don't want the, the other stuff, but people have been like trained to think about like liquidity and like, you know, how easy it is to move pieces of the collection and stuff. And I get those things, but like at the end of the day, you have to have somebody who really wants the thing. You know, there's not, I don't think there's a lot of people who really want to own these slabs of things that there's thousands of. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, and maybe we'll have enough people come to the market that at some point that's a, you know, a short printed thing. I've heard people here use the reasoning, you know, are, are there more than 10,000 people that want this card? That's all that really matters. I don't think that matters because you could have 
20 people that each buy a thousand copies and suddenly it's like, oh, this seems like it's so rare. It's like it's one buyer coming in and really changing the market. And that's not like stock because a company, like we talked about earlier on, companies make money. Companies create jobs. Cards are not like stock in that way. They're really not. I mean, you could think about it in the same way. They, they can trade the same sort of way, but they're not. They're not the same sort of way. And it's not like the stock of a human. Right? They're thinly traded assets. They can, they can change value on a dime in, in huge ways. So is it possible? Yeah, it is. Uh, it just doesn't interest me. And I don't know what will happen, but I, I don't know. Okay, Frank underscore Duke says the re recent price and or recent spike in card prices. I would like, I would think people would need to save money because of things like because of things in hard times, or people selling cards they have been sitting on because they need money because of COVID. Um, yeah, I don't know why why the market has gone up other than that I think that there's an all time high interest in the hobby right now. People are coming back that have been away for twenty years. Kids are getting into it. Uh, lots of people are really interested and um, I don't know what will change. And then you've got like the investor types all coming in. You've got these you know, guys that are in their 20s that are coming in. you just got a lot of things that are happening at the same time. There's a lot of reasons why cards are interesting. I think the only thing that I would add that's maybe a little bit different than what you've heard, heard other people say is I believe there's a large investor component that's a real investor group. Um, I believe that there, there are several individuals and groups out now out there now that are running real funds of, of cards. And um, that is very beneficial for the high dollar asset cards in the, in the um, market because there are now buyers out there. And the buyers aren't individuals. The buyers are funds. Um, I do believe that's happening. I think uh, that's happening in people funds don't come tell you that they're doing that. Those are privately held funds. And so you don't know about them. Um, and those can, you know, drive up the prices on a lot of different things. Those funds could also be investing in smaller assets, but I don't think so. I, I think that that seems like that would be weird. Okay. Uh, next question. Um, we're getting down to the end here, guys, on these questions. Um, actually, I think that might be the last question. I think it is, unless there's one more. <laughs> Joe, SP Authentic 84 asked me, tell me the meaning of life. You do not want me to go on and on about that, Joe. It will not, will not work out well for us. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to read, um, if I can find it, I probably can't actually. I've got too many people on my Instagram saying different things. But um, um, I, I am just super duper grateful um, for all of the questions that you guys asked. Thank you for, you know, for taking the time to, to ask the questions. I do feel like I am missing something that there was one, one person said, oh, you know what? I did find it. I did. Um, uh, my good friend underscore Mr. underscore Chow underscore uh, the zero and Chow or the O and Chow is a zero. He said, he asked something. I'm glad I just found this right now because I, I was totally going to forget it. He said something that was kind of interesting and I probably should have led with this because to me, this is the most interesting question. He said, 
He said, since you were really up to date with basketball stuff, he says, nothing from Panini after Kobe's death has been released, including base cards. And I thought that would be the case as Panini loses all likeness rights. Do you think Panini will negotiate with his estate or family to continue using his likeness, name, brand? If so, what does that mean for the future releases of Kobe's? As of right now, Optic is the last thing you can get from get an insert from. And so I responded, I said, those are good questions, man. I do not know the answers, but like you, I'm interested. I'll talk about this on my podcast tonight and give you a shout out if you don't mind. So he said that he didn't mind. I, I think that the Kobe thing is a good question. We never had a situation like this, um, and I don't, I don't want to rehash the stuff that I said before. But I don't know. I don't. I don't want to see Kobe Bryant cards anymore come out of packs. It just feels. It just feels cheap. Maybe there's a time where we can do it. Maybe five years down the line or something. But right now, it just feels like. It feels like we're still too close to it. You know, I don't want to see a card come out and be like, "Oh yeah, that guy plays basketball." And, I also don't want to see like a tribute card like is I don't know I just it's just it it feels it's weird because obviously I'm buying Kobe Bryant cards like crazy but I don't I hope Panini doesn't figure out a way to do that right away I just think it would it just wouldn't feel good um, but in the long term maybe 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 it would be good in the long term to have him so good question brother good question all right I want to talk about mail days. Thank you guys all for all the questions. Though. That was really awesome. I want to talk about mail days with you guys. I got like six things that I've gotten in the last month that are really cool. The first thing that I want to tell you guys about is I got a Pippin Prime Twine from 1998-99 uh, Hoops. That is my eighth out of ten. That means I only have two cards left to complete the set. Um, that insert set is pretty rare. Those cards pop one, two, three, four times a year is all. And uh, there's 10 of them and I've been working on it for about a year and I'm almost done. And I've done it at a pretty reasonable price too. So I feel good about it. That's a set that because Jordan and Kobe aren't in it is kept lower in value, but it does have Rodman and it does have AI and it does have Malone and it does have Kemp. So it's got some pretty good names in it. Um, but I'm almost done. I just have the two left, Kemp and McDice. So if you know where a Kemper or McDice are out of the prime twine, let me know. I also got three 2001-2002 Stadium Club Beam Team out of 500s. Both that and the prime twine set, I think are two of the nicest, uh, two of the nicest die cut sets ever made. The Beam Team set is like a refractor finish with incredible die cutting throughout the card, on the edges, on the, in, on the interior of the card. It's a beautiful card, they're all uh, similar in their die cut, whereas the prime twines are a little bit different. Um, but actually kind of a similar, similar like inner die cutting. Both are serial number to 500 on the back too. So some, some interesting similarities there. Um, I actually only need six more of those. So I'm getting pretty close on that set. If you've got any extras, let me know. All right. Now I want to get to my more serious cards of the last month. Man, I had a big month. Goodness. So let me tell I'm going to kind of count it down. Uh, the first one I actually have right in front of me right now. I was able through Comsi to get the first Revolution Kobe Bryant autograph, and I this it actually came in the mail just as it was about to come up on my countdown, so it was perfect. Um, if you if you want to go check out the video of it, definitely do. It's just on my Instagram, 
the way that the light hits these is really nice and the back uh, has that 90s feel as people talk about it um, with the little Kobe sticker on the back that he has on all of his autographs. It's just a fantastic card. They haven't, there haven't been a lot of them. There haven't been any actually to sell on eBay in a long time. There's, there just happens to be one that's ending in the next, I don't know, sometime in the next week, but it's the first one to, to end in a long time. So that card, I was able to pick up on ComC and I got it at a pretty decent price. I think what happens sometimes is people will put a high-end card on ComC and nobody who's on ComC wants it. And so it doesn't get some of the best offers. But then I've got my cash that's sitting there in my ComC account and I want to use it on something. So I'm willing to pay a little bit more. Sometimes those things work out. And uh, I picked up some good cards. That one, I picked up a LeBron Silver 2012 in the last year from ComC. Um, because again, I think it's rare for somebody to just have thousands of dollars sitting in their ComC account. Um, but when, when they have it, when it's there, it's the best way to do business because you know you're going to get the card. And ComC is great to you. So that Kobe is an awesome card. All right, number three. Oh man, which one's number three? Bleh. Guys, this is a serious month for me. I guess I'll go with this one. I've showed it off a couple times on Instagram already, even though I only had it for a couple days. But um, a good friend of mine um, had a 2008 UD Black Octographs of the 50s and 60s um, Boston Celtics. The Octograph is a card that depicts eight players, four on either side. And on the front, you have Sam Jones, Bill Russell, Bill Sharman, and Tommy Heinsohn. On the back, you have Frank Ramsey, Satch Sanders, Bailey Howell, and Don Nelson. And all seven of these guys uh, played with Bill Russell. So you've got Bill and his seven teammates. It covers all of his 11 championships. Um, he has he has teammates from, from each of those 11 teams on here. And the, the, the card has... Um, the card represents 55 championship rings, which is just fantastic. It's number to five. It's not a card that I ever thought I'd have a chance at. I never I even considered it, but when I had the shot at it, I looked at it and I went, holy smokes, that is a flipping piece of history right there. I just gave you guys a bunch of stats, but the way that the holofoil hits it, um, the way the octographs is in holofoil, the way that the ink is all gold and uniform, it's just amazing. It's not perfect. It's amazing, though. It's not perfect because eight guys don't sign the same card in gold ink and have it be perfect. Frank Ramsey looks like he, unfortunately, bless his heart, got his finger in the, the gold a little bit. The other seven are actually pretty spot on. There's no like smudging or anything, but there's it's just clear that the card's been with eight, you know, with eight different people. It's been it's been places, it's seen things. Um, but that maybe of all that's not the most expensive card that I have in my collection. I mean it's third on my my um, mail days list, but it is it's beautiful and it's a piece of history. All right, number two. I don't have it in front of me. But number two is the Michael Jordan uh, in a Wizards uniform and Kobe Bryant 2002 SP game used autograph number 25. I've seen several of these out here or out there, but I, I haven't seen very many of them where the autographs are both not going off the card. Both autographs are, are super sharp and 
you know, I just, I've been thinking more about how much I like dual autographs and what that card represents, specifically cards that have been signed on card. Um, multiplayer autographs are neat because you know that several players have held that same card. So to know that both Jordan and Kobe held that card, it's one of their first dual autographs. It's number to 25. It's in great shape. Um, that's an amazing card and, and a key one for, for the collection. The last one is another dual card, but it's a different kind of dual card. It's, um, well, I guess technically it's not a dual. It's the 2008 Topps Chrome Gold Refractor of Kobe Bryant. Um, you probably saw me post that a couple weeks ago when it came in on my Instagram. That was a big deal for me. I kind of hinted at that one um, when I did the Kobe episode. That was, I think, the second most money I've ever spent on a single card. Um, it's not my second most valuable in my collection now, but uh, it was a serious investment. I bought it from a good, high-quality um, member of the collect of, of the community. Um, I think his name on there is Kobe, Kobe Gold CA. Um, he's from Canada. And he asked me if I'd be interested in it. I told him I was like such a sick card. And then he was like, hey, let me know if you're, you know, or he's like, hey, I, I need some cash. Let me know if you're interested in this. And I was like, yes, I'm interested. I thought I probably missed the boat on that one. But he gave me a good enough price and I took it. And then what's awesome, and, and I'll t this, is, this is what's interesting. What's awesome is one went up. Um, at open auction and it sold for significantly more than mine and he said hey check this out look it, it your your you know your card's obviously worth more than you paid for it and I was like yeah this does feel great but one thing you got to know is for me to make the money that I needed to to buy that card I had to sell some things and one of the cards that I had to sell was a 2012 prison LeBron so I'll just tell you the details on it because they're already public. The guy who, who bought it in the end knows, uh, told the details. And so since those are out there, I, I feel like I can, I can tell you the details too. So I have, I had two LeBron 2012 silver prisms. I had two of them. And because this gold Kobe became available and I needed cash, I knew that one of the ways I could get cash would be by selling one of the LeBron silvers. So I took the one that was a lower graded nine. It has an eight subgrade. Um, and I, I took that and I put that out on Instagram. And in one night, I got a bunch of messages on him. And one of the guys who messaged me was card collector 291, Mike, who's an awesome guy. I've dealt with him several times. He's, he's a, just a good dude. And, uh, and so he reached out and he said, hey, really want this card, what would you do? What would you do on it? What would you do on it? And I knew I was probably letting it go easy and probably giving him too good of a deal, but he offered $6,000. And so I took it. Mike got the card, had an opportunity to acquire another card almost immediately. I was like, dude, Adam, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna sell this card that you just sold to me. And I was like, it's fine, man. He was able to go and move it for $7,000, like the day he got it or the day after. Now, um, the problem is that I sold that card for like something like $7,000 less than I paid for it or less, sorry, less than I, that's not true. I sold it for way more than I paid for it. I sold it for like $7,000 less than I could have if I waited a couple of weeks. 
You just don't know what's going to happen, though. So although I got this Kobe card at a price that was, in retrospect, probably a very good price, I didn't, you know, had I just hung on to the LeBron, I probably would have had larger gains. The thing that I go back to, though, is this. I already have one of those LeBrons. I'm glad I have it. But the Kobe was a more key card to me. And if you ask me, like, straight up, Adam, what would you rather have? The Kobe or the LeBron? It's not, it's not close. It's the Kobe. It's that card with both of those guys on the image. Um, the gold version to 50, graded a 9.5. It's just a great card. And it's one of the key cards in my collection now. Um, it probably doesn't get inside the top 10. It might not even get inside the top 15. We'll see. But um, it's a key card to my collection. And I could stand to lose the LeBron because I already had another one. And um, I only bought, I only had two because I got such a good deal on the second one. Um, but the, that that second one is is there to stay. I, I I will not be selling my LeBron silver anytime soon for the fear that somebody's going to turn around and sell it for twice as much a week later. All right. So then that that's it. Those are my mail days. So let's move to uh, our Beckett Bites for the week. Again, we're going to be reviewing the Paul Pierce issue, the 2002 June issue of Beckett Basketball Monthly. And I've gone through it with a fine tooth comb. I want to just tell you guys some things in it that I think you'll find are interesting. In general, the Becketts got worse as the years went by, guys. And so I actually intentionally pulled one out, not from the 90s, because I think the 90s were such a high-quality magazine. Um, they were still doing the reader's write portion in this, and I think there are some good questions in here that are interesting. The first is um, a section called, um, on page four, there's something called Untangling Kobe's Graph. And there's a picture of Kobe in his 1996 scoreboard autograph. And this is what the question is. It says, I have had some difficulty trying to determine the differences between the 1996 scoreboard Kobe Bryant autographs. From what I can determine, there appears to be a basic version, a red foil version, and a silver version. Recently, I have had trouble figuring out the difference between the basic and silver versions. I have heard... Um, I've heard in red where the basic is signed in black. I've also seen the possibility of two versions of the silver. My dilemma is being able to tell what exactly the difference is with the silver. I have some of the common autographs myself, and they have silver foil and are signed in blue. The silver Kobe's that I have recently seen have had silver foil and have been hand-numbered at a 325 on the front. After looking at an online auction service, sellers have posted three cards and claim they are the silver version, yet there is no hand numbering on the front. Still, they do have the silver foil and are signed in blue. I guess my main question is, did Kobe sign some of the silvers with hand numbering and some not, or should the true silver auto all be hand numbered, making the other the basic version? The response is, excellent question, Chad. You are closer to the answer than you might think. There are indeed two silver versions, and one is unnumbered and the other is numbered at 325. The difference between the two is that the hand number 325 silver version um, has an extra scoreboard authentic crimped stamp on the bottom left-hand corner of the card front alongside the second authentic auto, which is printed in silver on the bottom right of the card front. The unnumbered silver is the basic version. 
Scoreboard did some wild stuff, guys, and it's really hard to tell sometimes. My suggestion, just cards by Adam here, scoreboard stuff, I wouldn't spend a whole lot more money on different variations. To me, that's all a scoreboard rookie auto of Kobe. Whether something is numbered to 5 or 10 or 100 or 1,000 actually doesn't matter to me in scoreboard. What does matter is that it is a rookie auto. It is really cool. But I, and I don't own one of these. I'm just telling you what my take is. So that's my take. I'm sticking to it. Um, <laughs> I thought this was funny. On page six, uh, they have a little article called The Top Five Nodders of the Year. And it's about, um, it's about bobbleheads. Forget how popular stinking bobbleheads were. One of the five most popular bobbleheads of the year, along with four basketball players, was Ben Franklin. What a weird world it is. But later on that page, there's something called um, Air Gauge me Measuring MJ's Impact. Now remember, in 2002, and this is in June, so this is, this is right after Jordan is finally retired, right? After the 2001, two, oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. This is after his first year. I'm sorry. Um, there's a there's there's this article on Jordan. So it says, as it turns out, just about everyone was correct regarding predictions about Jordan's comeback. Yes, like many fans predicted, he was still a top 10 player and an all-star, averaging what he did. No, as other forecast, the body couldn't withstand the rigors of the NBA's 82-game season and he missed 22 games. No, they, the Wizards didn't make the playoffs. Um, and the the rest of the article talks about just the value of Jordan's stuff in a Wizards uniform. And uh, the thing you got to know is when Jordan came back in 2001, stuff blew up. All wizard stuff was crazy. The values were insane. But the second year, that really died down a lot, um, like a ton, and it became like even like not popular. Um, and, and that's kind of what this is marking is sort of the middle of all of that. All right. Next thing that I thought was interesting from this Beckett, actually, there's some there's some like by the boxes. There's a by the box on Flare Maximum where they open a box and they talk about it, and they do the same thing on Tops Pristine. The Tops for uh, 2001 Tops Pristine is a product that I think a lot of people will remember. It had one autograph and five relics in every box, and the autographs in that set are beautiful. Um, but the thing that I thought was kind of cool is I didn't realize the sweat and tears were only one in eight packs. That's a really neat insert set. It has like pieces of towel on it, but you can actually like touch both sides of the towel. Uh, I'd recommend you check those out. But in this by the box, they pulled two of them out of the same box, which is pretty cool because like I say, though, that's kind of a popular set. I think it's the only time they did a towel. And the, the way that they did it, I think was really neat. The other thing, the next thing I wanted to highlight was there's actually a Beckett graded uh, uh, submission form in the, in the Beckett. And so I looked at some of the prices on here and thought you guys might think that this is interesting. So for a two-day service, cards were $25 to be graded. How about that? And that's if you sent in one to 19. If you wanted two-day service on 100 cards or more, you would only pay $20 back in 2002. So compare that to what it is now. Um, shipping prices obviously were far less, and it looks like uh, insurance prices were too. Um, although amazingly the declared value on an insurance package only went up to $3,000 on the form, which is amazing. Now that number's a lot higher than that. 
Um, but yeah, the, the, the prices obviously to submit were far less back in the day than they are now. Kind of good to recognize that. Um, the next thing that I wanted to highlight was the hot singles, which gives us the top 20. And I wanted to highlight a few things that you might be a little bit surprised made it onto a top 20 list in 2002. Number 20 was the 96-97 top Chrome Derek Fisher rookie. Number 11, this one surprised me, was the basic tops Kobe Bryant rookie, which has seen incredible gains this last little while. Number four was the uh, Jason Richardson Kobe Bryant dual jersey out of Upper Deck Honor Roll, uh, that rookie card. Number three was the Topps Pristine Andre Kirilenko, Topps Pristine rookie. And the number one was the 2001 Topps Pristine Jason Richardson rookie. Rookies have always been the hot thing. It's always been what's driven the market. But as you look back at this, hot rookies oftentimes didn't do amazing things. Uh, I wanted to highlight, I've been highlighting in the old Beckett's the prices of the different PMGs. Because um, <laughs> I think it's interesting. Um, you guys know what's happened to the price on PMGs. They're just astronomical well, if we look back at this Beckett from 2002, 97 precious metal gems from the base set or from the regular metal universe set, Michael Jordan was worth $600. Kobe Bryant, $400. How about that? Tim Duncan was worth $160. PMG Red, amazing. $160. So, but like I said, 600 for Jordan. Guess what the PMG medal championship was worth? Totally self-serving and telling you guys this. It was $1,400. So back in 2002, people believed the PMG championship was twice the card than the regular PMG. How's that? All you guys who love your PMGs? Just kidding. I love you guys. And I love those cards too. They're great. It's just, it's amazing how those have grown compared to, compared to some of the other sets. There's a graded card price guide at the end of the price guide, which is fantastic. I love it because there's different prices for, in some cases, for Beckett cards versus PSA cards, I think. And, ah, it's just awesome. The Michael Jordan Gem Mint 86 Flare sticker was worth $16,000 in this. And the PSA, um, PSA 10... Jordan was worth 14000 and they didn't even have a PSA 10 price for the Jordan in BGS. They had a mint BGS price of 5000 and a mint PSA price of 3000 I remember when I, when I read this and I was a kid thinking, isn't there a massive conflict of interest that the grader is also like showing what the price is? And yes, there was a massive conflict of interest, and no, those prices haven't held. Um, for what it's worth, I still like vintage BGS-graded stuff more than I like PSA, but um, that's one of the better secrets in the hobby. The last part of the back that I'll highlight to you guys is like the whole second half, everything after the price guide, or most of it anyways, is um, a highlight on Celtics cards, and on Paul Pierce in particular. And then there's a you know a section on like the different legends cards, and they do a list of the top 15 Celtics cards. It has you know Russell's 57, and it has Russell autographs and jerseys and Paul Pierce cards and stuff. If you're a Celtics fan, this might be kind of a cool thing to look back at and try to like 
see if you can get all of those different cards. But, um, I thought that this Beckett was, I thought it was interesting. I, again, I don't think it's as good as the ones from the late, from the late nineties, but I thought that they did a good job on it. And I'm interested to keep going through these and hopefully you guys found some value in that. All right. On that note, appreciate you guys for sending your questions over. Um, I hope that was interesting to you. I hope you enjoyed my thoughts on, on those 10 questions, the Beckett bites, the mail days. If you have any feedback, or if you have any questions you want me to hit next time or anything that you feel like passionately that you'd like to hear me talk about, I love doing the podcast. I love talking about the hobby. Um, and I love interacting with everybody and um, just just think that this is so much fun. I, I, I want to, again, just give a massive, massive shout out to all the Jordans 23. Nick, dude, made my whole day. I'm still just kind of thinking about it as, I, as I'm talking, um, made my whole day, your kindness and generosity. Just, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for giving us a fun memory tonight and, and for, um, for just being kind. I would like to say that's what all, the, the hobby is all about, but I think very few of us ever have given that sort of gift before. So thank you. Um, let's all try to be a little bit more like Nick. Um, and on that note, and until next time, happy collecting. Thank you.